Behold what manner of love you bestowed upon us, Father, that we should be called your children, and indeed we are by the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, we rejoice in you, we thank you, we honor you, we ascribe to you today all glory and honor and blessing, because unto us a child has been born, and unto us a son has been given. And he is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is our wonderful Counselor. And we're persuaded today by your truth that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. We thank you that he's come to indeed make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And we pray that we might respond with open hearts, hearts made new by the Spirit, to enter into worship and praise today and to ascribe to you the worth of your glorious goodness to us. Father, we thank you that because of Christ, we've been freed from the law's condemnation We've been freed from the penalty of your broken moral law. We thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent him, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And you send forth the spirit of your son into our hearts, confirming our saving interest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray today that you might apply to us the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension the present reign and intercession of our Lord, that we might know him more fully, more intimately, more consistently in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Accept our worship today because we offer it not in our merit, but we offer it in the perfect and final merit of the Lord Jesus. Father, your eyes are upon us today. Your ears are open unto our cry. The psalmist says that you know us, you know us intimately. In fact, you know the word upon our tongue before we ever speak it. And as you scan the varied circumstances of our lives today, we pray that you might impart wisdom in the midst of our confusion, that you might give strength in our weakness, that you might give grace and continued mercy in our sin, and that we might come to know by experience that your will is good, acceptable, perfect, and complete in Christ Jesus. Father, we desire to give today joyfully. We thank you that you've abundantly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we give gladly, we give obediently, we give generously. And we pray that you would take these gifts, that they would be planted in the good soil of your kingdom and bring forth an abundant harvest to the praise of your glorious name. We pray that through the varied ministries of Gracie Van that we might be a part of a great harvest that as many as you've appointed to eternal life would be brought to life in Christ. God, give us vision and wisdom and perspective how to join with you in your redeeming work. Accept our praise, accept our persons, accept our prayers, and accept our gifts, for we offer them in the name that's above every name, even the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Obviously, Dr. Young is away today, and... um, Every uh, Sunday, the staff gathers in the Betty Ann room, and we pray at about 845. We pray for the ministries of the day. We pray for special requests and needs. And we pray for uh, God's people to be encouraged and blessed, for the Word of God to be taught and proclaimed clearly, consistently, and for the Holy Spirit to apply that truth to our lives. And this morning, Jeff Simons was away. Uh, Jeff normally facilitates our prayer time and the venerable and distinguished Bob Wood led in Jeff Simon's place. And Jeff asked me, uh, what time is it? Uh, He asked the entire group. In fact, he said, does anybody have the correct time? Um, 
And someone said, it's 845, and Bob said, my watch has stopped. I asked Bob if I could borrow his watch and uh, bring it to the pulpit. And you'll be happy to know that uh, there was a chorus of boos and and, uh, a a vigorous response, and Bob did not give me his watch. So um, I said that to say that I'm delighted to be here today with you and for us to spend a few moments together around the Word of God. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, the book of Galatians, chapter 1. This uh, is probably Paul's first letter. It was written at a crucial time as uh, the gospel was being proclaimed and churches were being planted. Paul has penned this letter at the conclusion of his first missionary trip in which various churches were planted in this area called Galatia. Uh, the churches were initially prospering and thriving as vital works of the Spirit, and yet there came in some teachers in their midst who began to cloud and confuse the issue of the gospel. The gospel is at stake. The truth, the beauty, the power, the purity of the gospel is at stake when you and I read the book of Galatians. It's an important book for that reason. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, we want to be absolutely clear about the truth and the content of the gospel. And we'll begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 11, and follow with me as I read all the way through chapter 1, verse 11 through verse 24. This is God's Word. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it... From man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Ryan, um, our son, and I have a morning ritual. We leave the house at approximately the same time and make the school run. I drop him off, and then I come to the church. And Generally, we listen to the same radio station in the morning. It's a non-Christian station. It's an FM station. I will not divulge the station other than that, but if you want to offer me $5 privately, I might be tempted to tell you which station it is. But we listen to this radio station, and at about the same time every morning, there is a local area pastor who comes on with a soundbite devotional. The content is... Is good. His voice quality is good. It's well packaged. Uh, you could say from a marketing standpoint that, uh, that it's excellent. But over the months as I have listened to the soundbite devotional, I, one of the things that I began to discern is that you could be left with an impression 
that Christianity is about trying harder. It's about nice people becoming nicer. It's about good people becoming better. It's about living a balanced life. It's about trying to do nice things and good things. But that's not the gospel message at all. The gospel message is not about trying harder. It's not about trying to be better, trying to be nicer and more polite, to try to spread good cheer and be a good person. The gospel is a radical message. It's nothing less than the message of God coming in our likeness, coming in our stead and absorbing and suffering the just penalty for his broken law. It's about Christ coming and interposing himself and absorbing the just wrath of an infinitely holy God. It occurs to me that this could be a subtle and yet damning substitute. It could be another gospel, a gospel of niceness, a gospel of being a good person. But that's not the biblical gospel. That's not a saving message. That's about me trying to do something when, in fact, God has accomplished a complete and finished work for us by sending his son. C.S. Lewis called niceness in mere Christianity a great plague. He said, in fact, niceness is an excellent thing. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making every person nice, we could have or should have saved his or her soul. A world of nice people contend in their own niceness would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. Now listen to this. For mere improvement, mere improvement is not salvation. The issue, as Paul is writing this letter, is that there is a substitute, a counterfeit, what he would call in the opening verses here, another gospel was beginning to seep into the life of the church. The gospel is nothing less than the power of God for salvation. It's a radical message that the one true and living God became man to merit, to purchase, to buy up, to secure our forgiveness, our pardon, our freedom, and our acceptance with the living God. Paul was in a battle as we find the context of this letter. He's in a battle with other teachers who had come in and had begun to usurp the truth and authority of the gospel message. It's an intensely personal passage this morning. It's an autobiographical sketch in brief because Paul talks about his life before he came to Christ and he talks about his life after he came to Christ. But in this passage this morning, I want you to see something of the supernatural nature of the gospel that you and I embrace and the gospel that we believe. And the first aspect of that supernatural nature of the gospel is seen in its divine origin. That's the way Paul opens this passage with the divine origin of the gospel in verses 11 and 12. He said, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I didn't receive it from man in verse 12, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, in essence, is saying that, that the gospel that he proclaimed the gospel that you and I read, the gospel that you and I embrace and share, and the gospel that we rejoice in, and the gospel that is the power of God, is not the product of human invention. It's not the product of human or earthly contrivance. It's not the product of tradition or reason. It's God breaking into the course of human history. It's God interposing himself and giving us a saving message, a message of redemptive 
important redemptive truth. And this is absolutely critical, absolutely crucial. Because we hear so many different messages. Because you and I live in a sound bite world. And we live in a world of sound bite theology and sound bite truth. And it would be easy for the gospel to become clouded, for it to become less than clear. Have you ever had this experience? You'll be driving someplace, and it's, maybe it's the route that you drive all the time, and uh, you get lost in thought. And before you know it, you're there, and you really don't recall having arrived there. Has that, that ever happened to you? That happens to me more times than I would really like to admit to you today. That while I'm driving, I'll be thinking about other things and going through the motions of driving. Uh, that may not be good, but, but it's true. And because we hear the gospel and we hear the word gospel so much, it would be exceedingly easy and exceedingly subtle for us to lose the grasp and the grip of what the gospel really is. It's not something that we imagine. It's not something that we invented, but it's something that God has revealed to us. And the truth of the gospel is handed down as a spiritual baton from one generation to another. When Paul left Timothy at the church at Ephesus and penned his last letter, 2 Timothy, in the second chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, commit to faithful men the things that you've heard me teach so that they will be able to commit to other faithful men. The gospel truth, the word of God, is handed down from one generation to another generation. And our hope in this life, and certainly our hope in the life to come, is based firmly in God himself and his reliable revelation. It's not based on human opinion, the passing whims of contemporary culture or cultural traditions or changes. It's rooted and anchored in the very character of God. It's now canonized in 66 books that are inspired and infallible. And we hold in our hands this morning and have open before us a reliable, authentic word from the living God. And it's a saving message. It's a life-transforming message, as we will see in just a moment. God has given us this content as the object and the anchor of our faith. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on some private esoteric experiences that we may engage in from time to time, but it's an anchor of our soul. It's the very truth of God. And the truth was the subject of debate and the subject of controversy in the context of this early church plant at the book of Galatians. So the gospel is supernatural because it comes from God himself, breathed out by God. The gospel is also supernatural in verse 12 because... The subject of the gospel is supernatural. It came through the revelation, Paul says, of Jesus Christ. And here, Paul is referring, uh, referring to his conversion experience in Acts chapter 9. Paul, as you may know, was a religious terrorist, a persecutor of the church, the persecutor of those who had embraced and were following Christ. And he has letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, and he's headed down to this place called Damascus. And he's going to compel those who had named Christ as Lord to blaspheme his worthy name. But God had a different plan for Paul's life. In Acts chapter 9, suddenly a light shone from heaven, knocked Paul off the mount on which he was riding, blinded him for three days. And Paul heard this message, this voice from God. And Paul's response was twofold. Who are you, Lord? 
And what will you have me to do? And when Paul says that this did not come by by human reason or tradition, it came by revelation, suddenly he had a revelation that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And this word revelation literally means unveiling or laying bare, laying open for understanding. And there is a sense, folks, in which that's exactly what the Scripture does. It lays before us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It unveils Him to us. He is anticipated in the Old Testament as a promise. That promise is fulfilled in the New Testament. He is anticipated in the Old Testament as a shadow. But in the New Testament, that shadow bursts into full light as we behold Him, whom God had promised as early as the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. All of God's promises and all of His saving purposes find their fruition in Christ. He is God's yes and He is God's amen to all of God's saving promises. Supernatural nature of the gospel doesn't end just with the content, though. And some of us may enjoy the content. Some of us may enjoy the doctrine, the theology, if you will, of the Word of God. But it doesn't end there. The gospel doesn't end there. It's not just propositional truth, although it is that. But it doesn't just end there. Because that truth becomes a power. It becomes a life-giving, life-transforming, life-altering, life-changing power. And here I think you and I see the real import of the gospel. It's given by the God who cannot lie, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the anchor of our soul. But the supernatural power nature of the gospel doesn't just end with the content. Listen, the content, embraced and believed by faith, begins to transform and begins to change our lives. And if you'll notice in this passage that we've read this morning, there are three dynamic outcomes of the gospel. There are three things that happen in our lives when the gospel comes to us in saving, convincing, and converting power. Paul's conversion emphasizes these three experiences. And I'd like to submit to you this morning that maybe these could be used as self-tests. You know that you've experienced the power of the gospel on the basis of these three tests, these three experiences that are found in the balance of this passage. And the first one is that the gospel is a means of divine intervention. The gospel is a means of divine intervention. The Apostle Paul left Damascus. He left Jerusalem to go to Damascus as a proud Pharisee, a religious zealot, a persecutor of the faithful who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, you've heard of my former conduct or lifestyle in Judaism. And notice what he says in verse 13. I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. We're not going to take time this morning, but in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, it says that Paul was literally making havoc of the church. Later on in Acts, as Paul is sharing his testimony, he says, I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man. I was a proud, arrogant man. And I compelled people to be put to death because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, a religious terrorist. That would be his story. 
Could you imagine opening the commercial appeal this morning? And across the front page, the headlines in big letters, Osama bin Laden converts to Christianity and accepts Jesus Christ. Honestly, could you imagine that? Could you imagine in a subtitle, and we'll be preaching at Grace Evan Church in Germantown today? Could you imagine coming in here someday and seeing Osama bin Laden filling this pulpit and proclaiming the saving grace, the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Could I tell you that something similar to that is true? The Apostle Paul, he was a religious terrorist who persecuted and compelled to blaspheme those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ until God intervened in his life and changed him. And the gospel that he had abhorred, the name that he had blasphemed, the people that he had hated and sought to destroy, he now embraced the Christ that he had renounced and rejected. He now loved and invoked his name in worship, in praise and in prayer. You and I can't appreciate that because we're Two millennia removed from it. But if you could imagine Osama bin Laden coming to Christ and standing behind a pulpit somewhere today and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and their salvation and no other, you could begin to feel the import of God's intervention in the Apostle Paul's life. See, the gospel comes as divine intervention. It comes and intervenes in our lives. And there is a sense in which the Bible is an unbroken record of God's intervention, of God's Moving to rescue us from our sins and the consequences of our sins. Think about it. All of Scripture really is a record of that. Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, they sinned against God. And God came to them in the garden. He didn't turn his back. He didn't walk away. He came to them with the promise of a coming Redeemer. He came to Noah in the midst of a perverse and corrupt and violent culture and generation. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God intervened in his life. In Genesis 12, Abraham was an idolater in some faraway, dusty location called Ur of the Chaldees. But God came to him, and God intervened in his life. And you will find that pattern throughout the Scripture. You will find Christ coming in the fullness of time, God's supreme intervention, That He so loved us, He sent His Son to save us, that we would not perish in our sins. And you'll find Jesus intervening in the lives of the apostles. So that in John 15, in verse 16, He says to them, You didn't choose Me, but I chose you and ordained you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. When you consider your life today, you look back over your own personal history, Has not God indeed intervened in your life to save you? Has He not intervened providentially and circumstantially and graciously and powerfully over and over and over to show His grace, His sufficiency, and His mercy? The Bible is a record of God's intervention. The gospel is God's message and God's means of intervention. Turn with me very quickly, if you will, please, over to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, and then we're going to turn back to Ephesians 1. You could insert your name, you could insert your life in Ephesians chapter 2 because it's a summary. It's a summary of all of our spiritual histories. 
Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But notice this in verse 4. All of that's true. We were spiritually dead, estranged from God. We were in bondage. We were blind. Our understanding was darkened. We were without hope in this world and without hope in the world to come. But notice verse 4. But God, but God has made us alive together with Christ and has raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. This is God's intervention. Do you recall it in your life? Has there been a moment when God interposed himself and opened your understanding and gave you a new heart and gave your life in Christ and the joy of sins forgiven and canceled, dropped into the sea, removed as far as the east is from the west, blotted out as with a thick cloud? That's how the gospel comes. It comes as a means. It comes as a message of intervention came in Paul's life. And you can plug your life story in here as well. Tyler Cantrell was on I-64 headed out of Elizabeth, Virginia, two days prior to Christmas in December 1996. And he was going across an overpass that spanned the gulf of the Monongahela River. It was cold and there was an icy film that covered the bridge and he lost control of the vehicle in which he was traveling and went over the railing and into the river. Joseph Brinson, a riverboat captain, saw the accident, saw the car go in the river, and saw when Tyler Cantrell was able to extricate himself, escape the car, and Bob injured to the surface. Without a moment's hesitation, Joseph Brinson went off the barge in which he was the captain and into the water, got to Mr. Cantrell and wrapped his arms and wrapped his legs around him and said, I've got you, I've got you. And he held on to him in those icy, frigid waters for 30 minutes until someone came and was able to rescue them. And they said, why in the world would you risk your life for a stranger? And he said, because I'm a believer. Because I'm a follower of Christ. And because Christ intervened in my life. And because Christ rescued me, I would risk my life to rescue another. No matter what your upbringing is, no matter what your circumstances are, the gospel is a message of intervention. It's God coming and intervening to save us from our sins. And as that bursts in our heart with fresh waves of understanding, then we're willing to live outside the shire. We're willing to intervene with the message of rescue and the message of intervention. You and I are able to know that we've experienced the gospel secondly, not just as a divine intervention, but secondly, the gospel comes as a means of spiritual revelation. Turn back to Galatians 1 with me very quickly, please. Galatians chapter 1 in verses 15 and 6, Paul talks about Christ being revealed to him. He says in verse 15, when it pleased God who separated me, from my mother's womb and call me through his grace to reveal his son in me. This Christ that he had once renounced and rejected suddenly became a living person, a life-giving, saving reality. 
And Paul was compelled to ask, who are you, Lord? And Paul was compelled to ask, what would you have me do? You see, Christ became a real living person, the Son of the living God, the Savior of sinners. There was a new perception, a new reality that burst in Paul's understanding. He experienced what later John Newton, a slave trader, and at one time a slave himself, would describe as conversion and amazing grace. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind to my true condition apart from Christ. I was blind to my lostness. I was blind to my eternal destination. I was blind to my need for salvation. But now I see. Now I see who and what I really am apart from Christ. And I see that the only solution to my remedy is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Has the gospel come as a means of spiritual revelation so that your eyes have been opened and you see yourself as you are apart from Christ and that the only remedy, the only hope is the Lord Jesus? This is the off factor in conversion. It's the, oh, now I get it. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 14, Paul says that the natural man, the unconverted person, doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foreign, they're foolishness to him. But when God's Spirit comes, listen, when God's Spirit comes, the light comes on. The light of the gospel shines into our darkened hearts. And the same God who commanded light in Genesis 1 commands light into your heart so that now you see your lostness. And you see the Savior of sinners, and you embrace Him, you receive Him, and you rest upon Him as He's offered in the gospel. Jesus told a very religious man by the name of Nicodemus that you must be born again. His religion was not saving. Like Paul, he lacked a vital experience. The Samaritan woman in John 4 is clueless about worship until she met the object of worship, even Christ. The spiritual revelation, this unveiling of Jesus is the work of God's Spirit so that the cataracts of sin and the cataracts of deception are removed and we see and embrace Jesus. The gospel comes as a means of divine intervention. I was lost and now I'm found. It comes as a spiritual revelation. I was blind, but now I see. But it doesn't end there. It comes third as a means of personal transformation. What Paul is saying at the end of this in verses 22 and following in Galatians chapter 1, he says, I was unknown to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Paul's life changed dramatically. His life was overhauled by the gospel of God's grace. He became a new creation in Christ. All things had passed away, all things had become new. And that's true in this text in several senses. Notice uh, back in verse 10 that Paul talks about being a bondservant of Christ. Uh, Dr. Young last week when he was preaching in Matthew chapter 25, you may recall this, says that in the, the original text there are different words translated as servant or slave. And the word that's translated bondservant, doulos, is the one that's without rights. The one that was owned by another. And Paul's life had changed so dramatically that he says, in essence, I'm now the slave of Christ. I have no 
rights. I've yielded them to Jesus. I only have opportunities and responsibilities to live for him. He was a harsh man. He was an angry man. He was a persecuting, driven man. And suddenly now he's humble. His heart is broken. And he calls himself the servant, the bondservant of Jesus. Eleven times in eleven verses in Galatians. You know, those people that he had sought to destroy, that he'd compelled to blaspheme, now he calls them his brethren, many of whom were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. And as a Pharisee, Paul would have thought that non-Jews were going to be firewood for hell. He so despised them. But now he calls them his brothers. And he calls the women his sisters. Other people saw changes in Paul's life too. Verses 22 to 24 He became the grounds of giving praise to God for God's saving work in his life. The supernatural nature of the gospel, brethren, is not just in the content, although the content is terrific, isn't it? But the gospel comes with dynamic outcomes. It begins to work its way into our lives. It intervenes and changes the direction of our life. It opens our understanding and it comes as a life-transforming power as we experience the power of God at work in our lives. In the early 1970s, a child by the name of Chris Carrier was abducted. He was raped. He was beaten nearly beyond identification. And he was dumped along a stretch of highway in South Florida that Melinda and I are familiar with called Alligator Alley. We were driving down that Alligator Alley one time and counted... Um, Over 80 alligators lying along the banks. We counted so many, we got tired of counting. And this elementary-aged child, Chris, abducted, raped, and beaten, and dumped, and left for dead along Alligator Alley. In God's merciful providence, his life was spared, and he was found. And David McAllister, the man whom police believed was responsible for the abduction and the beating was arrested, but Chris was not able to identify him because of the trauma. Mr. McAllister went free for lack of evidence and identification. In the course of time, Chris Carey came to a saving knowledge of Christ, and his life was transformed. His heart was liberated and freed. His life was so impacted by the gospel that he was compelled to track down David McAllister, and he did so now. An infirm and aged man confined to a nursing home. And he tracked him down and he went into his room and says, I have looked for you so that I could look you in the face and pronounce three words. I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm telling you today that you and I are not capable of that. Unless the power of God and the gospel has so worked in our lives that our hearts are becoming increasingly transformed and liberated into the likeness of Christ. How do you know when you're experiencing the gospel? Because it comes as a means of intervention. I was lost, but I've been found. It comes as a means of spiritual revelation. I was blind, but now I see. 
It comes as a means of personal transformation. Changes are taking place in my life as a result of God's power working in me and through me. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and with this I close, was a gospel titan in the 20th century. He was an Englishman, a Welshman actually, been trained as a doctor, promising doctor. He came to Christ and his life was changed and transformed. And later in his ministry, he was appearing before and addressing the Christian Medical Society. And he was critiquing Victorian Christianity, 19th century English Christianity. And he despised it. He loathed it. And he felt that it was dangerous. He was not fond of it because he said religion, that is Christianity, overshadowed the people. But it never penetrated them. People were moral. They were nice. They were religious. But the truth and the power, the beauty, the glory of Christianity did not penetrate them. That may be true of many today. They've embraced a cultural message. They attend church. They go through all the rituals and the routines. But the reality... The life-giving, life-transforming reality of God's gospel of grace has not really penetrated them. That may be true of some of us here today as well. May this Advent season in which we remember and we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that unto us the Savior has been given and His name is Christ the Lord, may it burst with fresh reality in our lives. And penetrate us to the core of our being. Is the gospel more than a proposition in your life? Is it a power? And are you a glad-hearted citizen of a good king? Even King Jesus. Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. And we look at the life and the story of the Apostle Paul and This extended passage this morning, we recognize your saving purpose and your saving plan and that you do come in convincing and converting power. May, by the work of your Spirit, we understand today that the gospel not only has content to it, reliable, authentic content, but it also has a life-transforming message and power. And may we increase in our understanding and appropriation of that all to the praise of your grace given to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.